Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for March 8th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to dive into a bunch of news, including Jon Favreau's Star Wars TV series, Terminator casting, Netflix's other superhero cinematic universe, the Joker movie, a Sopranos prequel, Defenders, Fox Searchlight, and Ready Player One box office tracking. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and I am joined today by Slash Film Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writers Y. Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Now, I'm debating something, guys. Like, you know, every episode of Slash Film Daily, I open it up and I give you a rundown of what we're going to talk about on the episode. But we, we've read about this in the show notes. Um, I don't know. I feel like my, like, reading off a list of things that we're running about might not be helping people. So I'm wondering uh, what you guys out there think. If you could please email me at peter at slash com. Does this help you? Does this not help you? Should we be doing something different there? What do you guys think? Because I haven't actually asked you. Huh. Uh, do you guys have thoughts? I don't think it hurts. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I, th- I think it's fine, too. I think uh, it's kind of like a, a title menu at the beginning. I feel like, stick around for this, yeah. these news bits. Yeah, table of contents kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we've always done it because that's what other podcasts do is they you know tell you what's going to be on that episode. But I just, uh, I don't know, I almost feel like it, it like spoils some of these news items. But OK, maybe I'm in the minority. <laughs> Can we spoil news items? <laughs> um, I'm sure listeners and readers think so. So, <laughs> um, yes. Anyways, today has been one of the biggest news days in months. Uh, we, we have, you know, Star Wars news, Marvel news. A bunch of different comic book properties, DC news, Terminator news. Uh, it has been nonstop, so much so that like we had at least like four other items we we're going to cover on this news program that we had to cut off the schedule because we just aren't going to have time. So let's just let's just dive into this. Um, John Favreau has been announced uh, for the as the writer and producer of a new live action Star Wars TV series for Disney streaming service. Ben, what do we know? 
Yeah, so uh, Kathleen Kennedy announced on StarWars.com earlier this morning that John Favreau has been hired. She said, I couldn't be more excited about John coming on board to produce and write for the new direct-to-consumer platform. John brings the perfect mix of producing and writing talent combined with a fluency in the Star Wars universe. This series will allow John the chance to work with a diverse group of writers and directors to give Lucasfilm the opportunity to build a robust talent base. So uh, Favreau, to me, seems like a pretty good fit for uh, the Star Wars universe. It's interesting that he's going to be working on the the TV side instead of the film side. Uh, But yet again, we have to say that this is another like straight white guy that Lucasfilm is hiring in a a key position of power here. And, uh, you know, uh, much has been made of the fact that today's International Women's Day and this announcement came out on that day and it's another, you know, white guy in a position of power. It's not exactly the best messaging uh, from Lucasfilm again. Oh, and we should but, quantify that, that, um, you know, we don't know why this announcement was made today. Um, personally, I have known about this for over a month that Favreau was directing this. I uh, couldn't report it because of uh, reasons. Um, so it's been something that's been in the works. So why announce it today on International Women's Day? It could be possibly that, you know, a, a trade site like Deadline like contacted Disney and was like, we're working on the story. And then they basically had to announce it before, you know, it was announced through right. other channels. So that there is that possibility and we should acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, Kennedy did say the series will allow John the chance to work with a diverse group of writers and directors. So she, she sort of, I feel like they know that the general sentiment about uh, Lucasfilm's recent hiring practices is sort of tipping against them in, uh, you know, at least in the the Twitter sphere and and our, you know, film writing, blogging circles. Um, So I I think they have to be aware of what this looks like from the outside looking in. But but maybe Favreau just overseeing this, maybe he has a bunch of people picked uh, already, you know, in mind to step into you know, showrunner. I mean, he's essentially going to be the showrunner, but to step into writing and directing positions on this new show, we just don't know. It's too early. Um, but still, the the point stands that it's another white guy in you know making key decisions in the Star Wars universe. And it's uh, as much as I, I like Favreau as a filmmaker and think that he is a good fit for this universe. It's still a little disheartening to see um, them sort of just go back to that same well over and over again. Let's wait and see, and let's see what who's directing, who's writing, you know, who's produ- like the other producers. Let's see, you know, who the who is starring in. Uh, we do know that John Favreau is a huge Star Wars fan. You know, back, way back when, when Disney bought Lucasfilm, he was one of the directors rumored to be in talks uh, for either Episode Seven or a Star Wars standalone film. That obviously did not happen. I remember I was on the set of Jungle Book uh, in downtown Los Angeles, and they shot that on like these like warehouse stages, much like I think they're probably doing with um, the Lion King. And uh, all around the warehouse, they had uh, blue screens. And I asked him, you know, why did you choose blue over green? Is there some kind of technical reason? And he was like, No, there's really no technical reason. It's just that like I remember growing up looking at all the behind the scenes Star Wars images and it always had blue screens. Now it's all green. So I, I just wanted to be, I feel like I was on a set of like a Star Wars movie. So <laughs> um, I thought that was kind That's of sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, uh, I'm wondering what, what do you guys think of this beyond, you know, obviously what Ben said about, uh, you know, it not being um, a more diverse choice. HC, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think John Favreau is actually really uniquely suited towards the Star Wars franchise just because he has proven to be really skilled with making films that are centered around uh, visual effects and motion capture like Jungle Book and the upcoming Lion King. So it seems that that would be suited towards a Star Wars TV series. I think it's a series, right? Yes, yeah. live action Star Wars series. Um, but yeah, it's... I. I'm kind of ambivalent towards the fact that it's another white, straight <laughs> male creator that uh, Disney is choosing. And then the fact that they're harping, that they're um, sort of touting that they have a really diverse crew and yet their record doesn't quite show to to match that. Let's wait and see. Let's wait and see. I'm giving them a waiting see uh, <laughs> attitude at this point. Uh, but, um, you know, you do bring up a good point. Uh, when George Lucas was making his, when he had announced he was going to make a live action Star Wars TV show, it was going to be set in the underworld. Um, and uh, at the time, it was rumored that he was basically waiting for technology to catch up, that he wanted to do virtual environments, kind of like Avatar or, I guess, Jungle Book, you know, motion capture uh, characters. And he wanted to push TV to a place that had never been before. I'm wondering, obviously this is probably not going to be the TV series that George Lucas uh, had envisioned, but I'm wondering if, you know, they're trying to do a similar thing here where, you know, they're calling it a live action TV series, but I'm wondering if, you know, half of it, it's actually going to be, you know, visualized, you know, through computers. Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts on Favreau as a, uh, as the head of the Star Wars TV series? I mean, I, I agree with what everyone has said already about this. Um, I also think it's a very safe choice. I mean, I don't have anything against John Favreau, but he's not like someone I would consider a quote unquote, like great filmmaker. I think he's a, he's a good filmmaker. He knows what he's doing. Um, it's not a table of announcement that gets me particularly excited, but it's not, I don't think it's like a terrible thing either. I'm somewhere in the middle. Let's put it like that. My, my problem is I love John Favreau's little films. I love like made. I love chef. And I feel like, uh, you know, I was talking with a friend and the, the, uh, he said that kind of much in the way that Ryan Johnson is getting sucked into Star Wars and we're not going to get loopers and bricks and brothers blooms. I feel like, you know, we're not going to get another chef because he's going to be busy in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, but it seems like Favreau wants to do bigger stuff. He doesn't want to do that. Those like smaller, uh, more intimate character pieces. Um, it should also be mentioned that Favreau has done some time. Uh, with some TV in the past, he um, uh, what was the MTV show that he just produced? It was a sci-fi series. Um... Oh, the Chronicles of something. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, the great, chron- great the stuff. Sh- yeah. Sonora Chronicles. Yes, yeah, you're right. <laughs> and he also was a co-executive producer and director of the first episode of the Bad Robot TV show Revolution. Uh, I saw Revolution, was not impressed by that. I know a lot of people like the Sonora Chronicles. I have not seen that. Um, but, uh, Ben, do you have any additional thoughts? Um, I guess, speaking of Favreau's TV credits, we should also mention that he was part of uh, the show called Dinner for Five, which was basically him and a bunch of guest celebrities sitting around eating, drinking, and talking about life on uh, on TV. That is obviously going to be totally different stylistic <laughs> and basically in every way imaginable. Um, and by the way, that this... show's amazing. If you have never seen Dinner for Five, I'm sure someone probably pirated it and put it on YouTube, not that I'm recommending that's how you watch it but uh you should go watch it 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 still holds up 
yeah. So I, I'm interested to see what he does with a, a TV show. And yeah, I think, Peter, you bring up a good point. I feel like this very well could be something where a, a majority of this show ends up being motion capture or, you know, heavily reliant on VFX because that's what he seems to uh, be passionate about these days. So we'll have to see. So we spent 10 minutes on one story. We're totally not going to go over our time limit today. But <laughs> let's move on to our next story, which is the new Terminator sequel coming from the director of Deadpool and James Cameron has cast their star. HT, what do we know? Well, cast one of their stars. So Mackenzie Davis from Blade Runner 2049 and The Martian, as well as the hit AMC show Halt and Catch Fire, is in negotiations to cast to join the cast of the Terminator sequel, which also will see the return of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Linda Hamilton in their iconic roles. So she is playing a key role, um, not the star role of of the new sequel, but a uh, role as a soldier assassin on a mission, according to The Hollywood Reporter. So she's going to play a human character in a movie that once again sets up the battle between women or man and machine. So she has uh, been frequently seen in a lot of sci-fi recently she was in Blade Runner 2049 as I as I said before and she was also in the critically acclaimed Black Mirror episode San Junipero so she really likes seems to like roles that kind of rest on the edge of humanity and technology Uh, so she uh, will be in this the sequel that's untitled so far um, and it'll be a direct sequel to Terminator 2 Judgment Day uh, from director um, Tim Miller like you said before and producers James Cameron and David Ellison. So we we don't really know anything about this movie thus far. We do know that this is going to be a sequel. It's going to uh, take into canon what? Terminator 1 and 2, not 3? Yes, only Terminator 1 and 2. And it's going to ignore 3, Salvation and Genesis. Wisely for Salvation and Genesis. So, but, so it's a sort of reboot in a way. If we're going to have Linda Han- Hamilton into the in, in this uh, movie... Where does she fit? Is she going to be a Terminator or a human? Ben, what are your thoughts? Oh, man, I did not really consider that, but that's sort of a fascinating notion. Um, they have definitely done female Terminators before. That was a big thing with uh, Christiana Loken in Terminator 3. But uh, I, no, I, I think Linda Hamilton's probably going to be the badass Linda, Linda Hamilton that we saw uh, in Terminator 2, just um, even older and possibly more badass. Because I think that was a big thing that, that James Cameron was talking about when that announcement first came out was that there aren't really uh, strong female roles in the way that or in the vein of Linda Hamilton in T2 in modern cinema. And I think that's something that he uh, wants to see returned to the big screen and is going to be excited about bringing that kind of character back. So I can't imagine that he would flip things so dramatically that she would end up being the villain in this, but I don't know that. I mean, that is kind of compelling. I, I, I really don't know. Peter. Okay. There's been, you know, what three Terminator films in a row that audiences have not responded for. Um, you know, we, we have some good people involved here. Uh, Chris, are are you going to be excited about the first Terminator film from James Cameron in, you know, decades? I mean, if he was directing it, I might be excited, but he's not. So no, I, I, I feel like this is a franchise that really needs to die. I mean, there really hasn't been a great Terminator movie since the second one. I mean, I think the third one is watchable, but beyond that, they've all been really bad. I, I don't think there's any way to really, redeem this franchise at this point 
it needs to be terminated, you might say. Oh, I wish I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. It'll be back. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Uh, you know, we were mentioning uh, the the movie is being directed by the director of Deadpool 1. Well, Deadpool creator Rob Liefeld uh, has landed his superhero cinematic universe in a deal with Netflix. Chris, you wrote this up for the site. What do we know? Yeah, so Rob, uh, is it Liefeld or Leefield? I'll say Liefeld. <laughs> I think it's Rob Liefeld. Okay, Rob Liefeld, he has something called uh, the Extreme Universe, which I don't really know much about, but he's signed a very big deal with Netflix to create a series of interconnected films. And uh, our old friend Akiva Goldsman is going to be running a writer's room to set up these films. Is he an old friend just like like, uh, MoviePass is our old friend? Yeah, we, everybody loves Akiva Goldsman. He's he's everyone's favorite writer. Um, he so yeah, Netflix is basically they're getting into the superhero cinematic universe game, just like you know Marvel and uh, you know DC to a lesser extent. They're trying to create their own cinematic universe now. So there you go. Now I, I know you haven't read any of these extreme titles, and if you can tell by the t- the the title of his imprint, you know it was something that came up in like the nineties, right? Uh, what can you tell us about Extreme? I can tell you literally nothing about it. There are char- <laughs> there are char- there are characters named Blood Strike, uh, Blood Wolf, a lot of blood in the titles. Kaboom! I can't wait for the Kaboom movie personally. <laughs> I'm just wondering with Netflix buying up all these kind of um, superhero cinematic universes that obviously they they purchase Millar World. Like I'm wondering if someday. Netflix is going to be able to do what we are not able to see on the big screen where we're going to see, you know, obviously in comics, we've seen like DC versus Marvel, like crossovers, but you know, that's never going to happen on the big screen. Maybe we'll actually see that on Netflix. Hmm. No, it's definitely, it's definitely possible. I I don't, I don't see why not. I mean, I guess we'll, we'll see, especially because I feel like with this there, especially with this title, there's a lot less like rights issues because they're all coming from, this one creator. So it, it might be a lot easier to have that crossover potential. It's also interesting to see how kind of, uh, interested Netflix is in creators. They're very creator driven signing deals with, you know, filmmakers or like getting Mark Millar's whole catalog or Rob Liefeld's whole category catalog. It makes me wonder, you know, uh, Shonda Rhimes and, you know, we've, we've talked about all those, those uh, showrunners and filmmakers in the past, I just wonder, you know, where they're headed, <laughs> because, uh, you know, it, at some point they're gonna they're gonna own us all. But, um, yeah, it's 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 pretty much gonna be Netflix and Disney is the future, and that's it. And then we'll all belong to them in some capacity. Well, um, you know, we talked uh, on this podcast about how Disney is doing their own streaming service and how. Uh, the Marvel movies are not going to no longer going to be on Netflix after that happens. Um, what does that do, say for the chances of the future of the Defenders TV series, Chris? Uh, the Defender, we will not, we will probably not get a Defenders season two. Uh, Kristen Ritter, she's doing promotion right now for Jessica Jones season two, which is now available on Netflix. And uh, she was asked, you know, will there be a Defenders 2? And she said, uh, I had a great time doing Defenders. It's such a good experience and so on. But she says, I don't think we are doing it again. And honestly, I'm not surprised because 
I personally don't remember anyone being very excited about the defenders. I feel like people still get excited about the, you know, the, the one-offs, you know, daredevil and so on. But there was almost no real hype about defenders after it came out. And I understand why, because it was not very good. And we, we really don't know for sure what the future of Disney's streaming service means for these Marvel TV series. Uh, Chris, is, is there the potential that like after, you know, 2019 comes along that we won't get further seasons of these shows? It's it's really it's still up in the air. I'm sure we'll know more once they finalize everything. Um, Marvel has been Marvel and Disney have been sort of wishy washy about the whole thing. At first, they said. You know, they're definitely going to stay on there. Then they said they're not sure. They, they're going back and forth. I'm sure we'll know sooner or later. I wouldn't be surprised if Netflix keeps what they have now, but anything new, like any new Marvel superhero series goes to the, the Disney streaming service. Yeah, we, we do know for sure that Netflix owns all the seasons that they have produced thus far. So those will be on there for the you know future unless Netflix decides to take them off just because, you know, Disney's their competition and why have a show. But I don't think they would do that. But um, let's move on to another bit of news. Let's go from Marvel to DC. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Todd Phillips' Joker origin movie. We now know what Joker or Joker's origin is going to be. Ben, you wrote up for the site. What do we know? Yeah, so just to uh, to lay the groundwork again for people who may not have been tracking this, uh, the Hangover director Todd Phillips is directing a movie about the origin story of the Joker, and this film is being written by Scott Silver, who wrote Eight Mile, and it's being executive produced by Martin Scorsese, and that is such a freaking weird combination of people for, for this particular project. But now a new report says that the origin of the Joker is in this film is essentially going to be the same as the origin of the Joker in the famous uh, 1988 comic Batman, the killing joke. And that is a famous comic that's by Alan Moore and artist uh, Brian Boland. And essentially um, it means that, the the rap report of this and their quote is the untitled Joker origin movie will portray Batman's arch nemesis as a failed 1980s comedian. And then uh, he basically develops the Joker persona after bombing with audiences. So that's the basically straight out of the killing joke, uh, that comic um, storyline there. And that's one of a few different um, nebulous origin stories that have been uh, sort of woven through the comics because there isn't a true origin story for the Joker. That's part of the allure of the character. But obviously for a movie that's being set in the 1980s and it's all about the origin of the Joker, they have to pick something. And it's not surprising to me at all that they would go with uh, this stand-up comedy angle because the killing joke is such a famous iconic comic. And Zack Snyder has always been a filmmaker who has loved recreating these really iconic moments from famous comic books. And it seems like even though he's not directing this film or, or even involved with it in the least, as far as we can tell, um, it seems like his influence on the DC movies has basically uh, infected this project as well, where they're basically they're, it's a, I guess it's a way for them to differentiate between the uh, DC and Marvel, right? Because Marvel has made a lot of decisions about, um, okay, we're going to do Civil War, but it's not exactly going to be Civil War like you know it from the comics. It's going to be a movie version of Civil War that sort of is tweaked to fit what they need it to fit. But DC has been much more um, 
uh, literalist, if that's even a word, <laughs> with their adaptations, um, Batman versus Superman and and all of that stuff. So, I mean, there, there's a lot there uh, to unpack. But um, but yeah, basically, the Joker is going to be a failed stand up comedian. That is an interesting take. Uh, I like that comic. Um, I know some DC fans like the kind of connection with Batman. I know my friend uh, and listener, John Armstrong, has said to me that uh, to him it's important that in some way Batman's actions created the Joker, either indirectly, like in The Dark Knight, or directly like Batman 89, that uh, the Joker is chaos's answer to the order that Batman tried to bring to Gotham. Uh, so I'm interested to see, you know, how this how this works out. And also with, you know, Matt Reeves doing his own movie, uh, uh, his own Batman movie. I'm wondering, you know, it, it, will this be connected in any way? We, we, we have been told this is a standalone movie, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, and also, I just wanted to mention, too, that the report says that um, Martin Scorsese's involvement with this project now makes a little bit more sense because Scorsese directed The King of Comedy, which is a 1983 movie that starred Robert De Niro as like a delusional comedian. And uh, apparently the Joker origin movie, quote, will include nods to The King of Comedy. And I, I don't really know exactly what that means, but it seems very obvious to me. Like, I don't know. It's like if they would make if somebody was making a movie about um, a an action centric archeologist and they get Steven Spielberg to produce it, you know, like it just seems like such a strange thing for them to be like, Oh yeah, we'll get Scorsese because he knows about this. And it, it seems like a weird thing that Scorsese would want to be involved in, you know, it's also a gangster movie. So, I mean, he, he does have, I don't know. I, I mean, I see where you're coming from, and he hasn't done much of that in the past. Uh, we'll have to see how it turns out. Uh, but let's move on. Talking about gangsters, the Sopranos prequel movie is in the works from series creator David Chase. This is very surprising. I mean, today has been filled with uh, some some big news stories. HT, why are they doing a Sopranos prequel? So David Chase is writing the screenplay for a Sopranos prequel film that will be titled The Many Saints of Newark, of Newark. Sorry, That's the current working title of this prequel movie that will take place in 1960s New Jersey. So it's a screenplay that has recently been purchased by New Line and is currently searching for a director. And Chase co-wrote the screenplay with Sopranos co-writer uh, Lawrence Connor. So that's... Um, it, it seems like... Uh, a little out of the blue because it's been what te- more than ten years now since the Sopranos first went off the air, but uh, to, but David Chase has sort of been itching to come back to the the, H- the acclaimed HBO series that has been deemed one of the best TV shows of all time, and I feel like this is probably the best way to do that since uh, his main star. Uh, James Gandolfini has passed away, and now he can delve into the sort of Sopranos Italian mobster empire that has been built up in uh, New Jersey since the 1960s. And it has the addition, too, of having the tensions of the race riots that took place at at that time as well. It just seems so strange because, uh, you know, that series kind of ended in a way, and the interviews David Chase has done have been kind of like, you know, that's it. Um, Chris, I assume you are a fan of The Sopranos. What do you think of this news? I'm excited about this. I love The Sopranos. Um, 
I'm not. I'm not. I'm oddly not cynical about this at all. For some reason, normally what? I get cynical. I know. Believe well, it or not, well, it's a prequel, so it feels like it could go into a completely different direction. Yeah, I, like I feel like if it was like a sequel, and if David Chase wasn't involved, I'd be like, you know, forget this. But the fact that it's him doing it, it's a prequel, it's a completely different story. I don't know. I'm excited. I, I love The Sopranos. I'm all for exploring the world that show created even more. So I'm looking forward to this. Ben, will you watch The Sopranos movie? Uh, I probably will eventually, but I'm going to have to watch all of The Sopranos first because I've never seen oh, an episode wow. of that show. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I, I, I hate to ask, but HD, have you have you seen The Sopranos? I actually have. Oh, wow. I've, I've only watched the first two seasons actually, because my roommate in college is obsessed with the series, and she, and we sat down to watch it for a while together. But we both got busy, but I really like it. It's it's a great series, and it's one of those like I'll, fi- I'll then finish it eventually because I know it's an important show. But um, I only watched the first two seasons so far. Yeah. Um, well, we'll have to see what comes of this. Uh, let's move on to Ready Player One. Uh, the box office tracking for Steven Spielberg's latest film is falling short of expectations. Chris, what do we know? Yeah, so Warner Brothers had been hoping for at least a $50 million opening weekend, but right now projections indicate uh, Ready Player One will be only getting around, I say only in quotes because I'd be fine with this, but uh, it's only going to get around $35 uh, million. So not not what they were hoping for. Um, I feel like everyone was sort of hoping that this would be Steven Spielberg's big return to blockbusters because his last few movies, which I think are great, they're great movies, but they're not you know, big blockbuster films. And this has that, you know, that sci-fi angle, that special effect, effects angle, but... It's apparently not doing not doing the trick. I'm kind of surprised. I mean, I'm not excited by these trailers for Ready Player One, but you know the, uh, the source material sounds promising. I haven't read the book, and you know Steven Spielberg back in the blockbuster game, uh, you know. But everybody keeps on like kind of crapping on these, like you know these posters we posted recently. You know, it seems like everybody's taking a dump on uh, how much this movie is kind of trying to uh, relate itself with nostalgia. Um, HT, what are your thoughts? Like, why are people not excited for Ready Player One? Well, I actually read the book. I read the entire thing, too. I didn't drop it. And while it has a really interesting premise, it's a pretty bad book. It skates by on tapping into your the like the best nostalgia of the 1980s and lots of pages just end up being entire like lists and feeling like it's just reading a Wikipedia page of remember the 1980s. So it's it's not a great source material, I don't think. And it it also taps dangerously into a lot of ideas of toxic, toxic masculinity without quite um, addressing it properly. So I am a little nervous about the movie. I really love Steven Spielberg and I trust him. But I don't know if I can trust him to elevate a book like this to a movie that's actually good. Hmm. We'll have to see how it turns out. Uh, you know, judging by these TV advertisements and the marketing, I'm I'm worried. Uh, but let's get into our last bit of news, and that is uh, at the Oscars, uh, Shape of Water uh, took home like the biggest honors. Uh, Fox Searchlight, which is the company that produced the Guillermo del Toro film, uh, you know, many people are wondering, you know, now that Fox is being acquired by Disney, how is that going to affect? This prestigious uh, mini major studio, you know, the, the, this art house division of Fox, uh, Fox Searchlight, 
Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so in a, uh, a company conference call with shareholders, Walt Disney CEO uh, Bob Iger said today that, quote, we don't have any plans right now to change what they do. We have every intention to maintain the business of Fox Searchlight. We think they're in the business of making high quality films. We think there's ample opportunity for us as a company to support those efforts. So that's good news for people who are worried about uh, what Fox Searchlight might uh, get morphed into under the mouse house's control once that uh, acquisition actually gets approved or assuming that acquisition actually gets approved. Um, for me, this sort of uh, raises the question of is Disney interested in awards now? Because under Bob Iger's reign, the studio has basically defined themselves with their acquisitions. You know, you've got Pixar and Lucasfilm and Marvel and now Disney or uh, Fox, excuse me. So the studio has basically just been hyper focused on creating these brands and and pushing forward these Disney brands, but they have not really been uh, the kind of studio that has seemingly cared about going after uh, best picture trophies and things like that. So if they keep Fox Searchlight operating as it currently is uh, under the Disney name, that seems like a good opportunity for them to potentially score some bragging rights, uh, you know, against their or their peers in the industry um, if they were to essentially dominate the blockbuster landscape, but also have um, some awards friendly uh, best picture contenders in the years to come. It, it That is interesting. I mean, obviously, it, Disney has gone for awards in the animation category. Disney and Pixar always uh you know trying to do the short animation uh award you know they've they've cleared house in that department um but uh i don't know part of me wonders would a film like shape of water which has a woman uh having sex with a fish man um happen uh under the you know reign of disney ht do you, do you think they're still gonna make movies like that that's a good question um i feel like they've primarily let Pixar sort of be a studio on their own, but we've seen some changes within Marvel. Nothing drastic, but it feels like, you know, Marvel, since coming under Disney, has definitely marketed he heavily, more heavily towards family and family-friendly fare. Uh, we no don't see scenes like the stripper scene that we saw in Iron Man. So it's, I wonder if they'll, you know, start uh, sort of in, uh, start interfering in... Um, more critically acclaimed, more like mature affair that we see with uh, with Fox. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I can't really say. It's also interesting because I feel like um, if you jump back in time like 10 years um, and you looked at Fox Searchlight, I feel like they would have been a it would have been a no brainer to, for them to be part of Disney. They were making accessible indie movies like Little Miss Sunshine, Juno. You, you know what I mean? Like and, and then since then, they kind of started to try to chase the awards and they got more like uh into those kind of films um like uh shame or shape of water which i feel like wouldn't be disney films uh so it's in i'm interested to see what happens to fox searchlight uh if and when this deal does go through but uh you know we we have gone slightly over in this podcast but i'm i'm proud of us guys because we got through a lot of uh big stories in a relatively short amount of time yay us uh pat yourself on the back <laughs> um chris where can people find more of your work online uh i'm at slash and i'm on twitter at c evangelista 413 
HJ, where can people find you? You can also find me at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. Ben, where can you be found? Surprise, surprise, SlashFilm.com, and you can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. You can find me at SlashFilm on Twitter. You can find all the stories we talked about today linked in the show notes and on SlashFilm.com. This podcast, SlashFilm Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, SlashFilm.com, all your popular podcast apps. Please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That helps us out quite a bit. Spread the word. Tell your friends about the podcast, and we will see you tomorrow.